Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm here to bring you another show which looks back at the 2020 season. We have the second show of three which will review uh, some of the constructors' fortunes across the 2020 season, this rather weird and strange season that we've had. And, uh, well, for the second week running, I'm very delighted to be joined by the... The very great Adam Wheeler. Hello, sir. I'm a bit alarmed by the fact that you took such a long time to pick your word there. Now I would have thought it would come to mind rather, you know, easier than that. But no, it's good to be talking again. Yeah, and we uh, strangely find ourselves back on this beautiful rooftop building. Yeah. In Barcelona, yeah. sun is still shining. Second week in a row. Blessed we are. Blessed. We are blessed. Yeah. But it's it's also good to be talking about the brands again in MotoGP rather than like we said last time one specific rider because. Uh, you know, tackling Yamaha and Honda, the two big hitters, you could say, of MotoGP. Uh, what a tale of woe it could be, you could say, for 2020. Um, they certainly contributed to the complicated weave of, of uh, you know, stories that we've seen this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in some respects, they're, they're kind of the guys that really didn't get the, the season right at all. Um, and we're going to go into that, obviously, in, uh, in a bit of depth. During this show, this is the second of two shows. We covered Suzuki and Ducati in uh, last week's show. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about KTM and uh, a little segment on Aprilia as well. But today, as you mentioned, Adam, is about Yamaha and Honda, um, two of the leading names in MotoGP history, uh, the most successful names in MotoGP history. Um, And I'm tempted to say it was a total disaster, but I look at the championship standings and uh, Franco Morbidelli finished second. Yamaha won half of the 14 races that we had in 2020. And, uh, well, the Petronas... Petronas were top independent team. They were the second best team in only their second year. And they were the only team where both of the riders won Grand Prix. Exactly. And yet we're labeling this as a a bit of a catastrophe. So what's going on? It's just because of the the drama that surrounded um, Yamaha generally. Um, You know, I always kind of think Fabio Quattararo, what a talent, but also very prone to moments of high expressive drama, you know, whether it's elation and, and smashing his visor off his helmet or banging the tank because he's missed out on pole position, another one. It always seems very expressive and it just seemed that Yamaha decided to follow the, you know, his um, his theatrics, it would seem this year, because uh, some of the stuff we saw is indescribable, um, especially the 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 drift from from race speed one weekend to the next weekend you know i mean we joke about maverick Vinales and some of the, the the digital zoom calls he had this year where you know we wanted to remove his shoelaces in some of them um in other times he looked like you know life was great and he's happy to have signed you know a contract renewal with with the yamaha factory so it just uh it was if he was struggling to put a consistent face on it imagine what it was like for fans at home trying to understand why you know the brand was struggling so much yeah absolutely i mean we have to broach uh basically the first auto gp race weekend of the year at harass because that essentially defined yamaha's the season right i mean yeah the engine woes that they encountered there, um, well, the, basically the engines that they used at Jerez, they weren't just unreliable, uh, but they were technically illegal. And, uh, I mean, they would have been Constructors' Champions had this not occurred. They were docked 50 points in the Constructors' Championship uh, later in the season for the irregularities with that. But, um, I mean, that's that shouldn't be happening at this level. No. 
I mean, using a different manufacturer for the valves and, and failing to disclose that information seems like an oversight that I imagine got somebody's head rolling back in Iwata. Um, but again, like you say on the track, Neil, the dominance of Quattararo in those first two races, again, made a lot of people think, wow, you know, that package is kicking on from 2019 and it's, it's going to sweep the championship, especially with all the, the fuss surrounding Mark and his absence after the second uh, second round. But yeah, I mean, that, those those explosive and very visual failures we saw from Morbidelli's bike, especially, I mean, that just would come back to haunt them. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Morbidelli and Vinales had to do the rest of the season after Jerez on two engines, 12 races on two engines, essentially. Big mileage. Yeah, and Big Rossi mileage. and Cuadraro had to do it in three. So, yeah, I mean, quite impressive. I know Vinales had the uh, the pit lane start at Valencia uh, because he used a sixth engine, which is one over the, the allocation. Uh, but for Morbidelli to be as competitive as he was towards the end of the season, uh, considering the mileage on his yeah. engine. I mean, in some respects, that is one of the achievements of the season. There must have been some technicians counting, you know, like a mileometer on certain components of that bike thinking, oh, please, please, please last. I mean, it was that tight, I imagine. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, if you look at the, the riders individually, it's just, each one of their stories seems to encapsulate what Yamaha went through. I mean, Morbidelli was in one of the biggest crashes we've seen, you know, in recent years in Austria. But then his end of season form was quite spectacular with the older bike. Um, you know, a bike that Quattararo was bemoaning by the end saying, you know, it's so different to what I have. I wish I had it, but I can't use it. Um, you know, quite, uh, Maverick Mignales as well. I think some of the the hype around him being one of the biggest, biggest talents in MotoGP is starting to ebb away a little bit because people are questioning his knowance or his mentality to get that motorbike sorted on a consistent basis. And for me, that exploding air fence, uh, Red Bull ring, just seems to sum up his season. I mean, it was like uh, a big deflation and, you know, a spectacular kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, an implosion, if you like. Um, you know, Valentino Rossi, the, the COVID thing, um, the lack of competitiveness, the mechanical problems, uh, it's just, it really is pretty sorrowful. Yeah, it was by the end of the season. However, before the COVID thing, he was in pretty good form. I know he crashed in, what, three or four successive races? Three races. Yeah, so that was... um, but in two of those, I mean, he was looking pretty, well, Mizano 1 wasn't, or Mizano 2, sorry, wasn't, uh, he wasn't looking that competitive compared to the week before. Uh, Neil, but how many was, times do you remember Valentino obviously overriding a machine? I mean, it wasn't, we're not used to him seeing him being like a 101% man, really, are you? I mean, he's always been so effective and, and successful by not hanging it out, you could say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, um, I mean, sadly, it's, it's one of the things that we've seen over the last few years when he's in that situation where he could possibly win it it's he's either lost out in the late fight or he's, he's crashed like yeah. you, you saw in malaysia in 2018 when he was trying to stave off marquez who was advancing i, I think it's going to be a i mean if you had to try and sum up yamaha's 2020 in a story it would be complicated and very long um i mean we're talking about intrinsic engineering problems that stretch back two years until they embarrassing made a public declaration of uh, a public apology, if you like, to the riders in, in Red Bull Ring. Again, that, that track seems to come around and haunt them. But then their grip problems in 2020 to show that there's still some something fundamentally wrong with that bike and the way they're able to um, utilize the Michelins. Um, it's just it's not really working. And I think uh, Quattararo signed that two-year deal with the factory team at the beginning of the year, February, I think. It was very early. 
I do wonder if there was a part of him thinking, yeah, you know, by by sort of late summer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's um, it's important to differentiate Morbidelli's fortunes and the fortunes of the other guys because Morbidelli on a hybrid of the 20 bike and, and last year's bike. And we know that at the end of 19, I mean, I think we could all say that the Yamaha was probably the, the most rounded package on the grid. They finally seem to have sorted out many of their issues. Um, I mean, Morbidelli, let's talk about him. He was fantastic. I personally never thought that Morbidelli had it in him to produce the performances we saw at the end of the year. I mean, it was spectacular. I don't know, his, his Moto2 days were pretty convincing. And again, a rider who's developed quickly through through the classes, you know, didn't bother with Moto3, went straight into Moto2. Um, you know, I think Valentino Rossi was asked to <coughs> kind of assess, you know, his VR46 Academy members and said that, you know, compared to somebody like Bagnaia, who has the technique, Morbidelli had very much like the technique, but also the determination. He had the character to win. So I don't think it was so surprising but it was surprising the way that he could utilize that that like you say the hybrid by the end bike but you know Quattararo was still saying to the press how different it was to what he had you know in terms of the chassis swing arm everything um he said it wasn't even worth looking at the data so it's uh you know it's a case of as a manufacturer do you swallow your pride and go back to an older machine uh, that wasn't an option for Yamaha yeah yeah it might be for 2021 but certainly after the good start in 2020, it wasn't. Um, Morbidelli, um, shades of Jorge Lorenzo when he was uh, winning his three races of the year. Um, and uh, I just love I just love the story. I love how he bounced back from 2019 when he didn't even get a look in. He was that, he was that badly outperformed by Quartararo. I, I don't think there was one single debrief in 2019 that I went to of Morbidelli's in which he was not asked why is Fabio so much faster than you? <laughs> yeah. And each time he handled it with dignity and good grace and patience and smiled and just said, you know, Fabio's doing something pretty special. But it does seem that a lot of the gains that he made this year were, were basically personal. I mean, it was him working on himself, him taking his training a lot more seriously. And um, I think that that combination of him and Ramon Forcado as crew chief starting to reap the rewards of a bit more experience of one another. Some belief as well. Maybe a bit more maturity. And I think working next to Quattararo, who won the first two rounds and had so much hype, um, you know, as France's next big hope, you know, maybe just let Franco work under the radar a little bit. It gave him a bit more breathing room. Because let's not forget his first year in MotoGP must have been one of the toughest debut seasons. I mean, not only was he on an, at a team that was falling apart, but on an uncompetitive machine and then broke, I think, his hand. Oh, his wrist, one of the two. So it was it was a, was a tough old introduction to MotoGP when he had just been so uh, controlling in Moto2, so powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That debut year with uh, Mark VDS, Honda was, a, was certainly a tough one. Um, so Quart uh, Morbidelli, I think um, if I was to, to rank the riders this year, I'd have Mir top and I'd have Morbidelli second just in terms of his, his performance, I thought was exceptional. I would agree um, with you. But, but looking at the other guys, I mean, you mentioned about Quartararo being very um, up and down. Uh, that's putting it mildly. Um, Maverick was very Maverick. It was a very Maverick season from Maverick. And, uh, and then Rossi, obviously, was, um, I mean, there was basically the pre-COVID and then the post-COVID uh, Rossi. And the post-COVID Rossi was, wasn't very competitive, but neither were the other two guys that were on his bike. It was tough to explain. Well, there's also the other problems like the break issues again in Austria. 
um, it just seemed like one crisis after another. Um, but, you know, putting the question to you, Neil, do you think Valentino Rossi has it in him to win another Grand Prix? Uh, uh, I'll say no. Yeah, I would. I, you know, this time last year, I definitely said no. But there was a four or five race spell in the middle of this year where he looked capable of it. Um, certainly lots of things need to fall into line. Um, but it's tough to, it's tough to say. It's certainly not, it's definitely not a certainty. Um, but I would say that, you know, he's, he's worth, worth backing for another year at least just to see whether, you know, can Yamaha get things sorted and, and find some direction again. Um, why were the, why were the 2020 guys, or the guys on the 2020 bike, so up and down? I mean, can we just put it down to um, loss of form or loss of temperament, loss of composure? I think it was the way, again, complete speculation, but it's a podcast, is what it's all about, I guess. Um, it's just the way the fortunes would shift so much. If you go to a high-grip track, like the relayed Mazzano uh, or Jerez, was obviously very effective. Um, Mignales was talking about uh, acceleration, uh, edge grip. You know, that seemed to be key factors. And when you came to a venue that didn't have that or an older set of asphalt, then they were just scrambling around trying to find some sort of solution to get some some speed onto the straights or to the faster sections or through the faster corners on a bike that, you know, was probably, I'm not, I haven't got all the data to hand, but it, you know, must have been one of the slowest of the speed traps. So if you're missing acceleration and top speed, then you're, you're, you know, you're flogging a horse really, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It did seem for much of the season that Yamaha's over a single lap were spectacular. Um, and if they could start well, there was a chance. However, the fighting capabilities of that bike are really quite minimum. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why, well, aside from Morbidelli's uh, final lap in Valencia where he's fighting with Miller. I mean, you, you never really saw the MI guys have a real duel. It was either leading at the front and, and pulling away or they were mired in the pack and suffering from rising tire, front tire pressures and making mistakes and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's a good observation. I mean, apart from, as we discussed, Morbidelli's authority in the last few rounds, there was there was good one that pace judging by the amount of pole positions and the nice shiny bmw that fabio quattararo you know drove away from portugal in but you know there was that word that, that phrase we heard constantly through the season of race rhythm and that was uh, one of ktm's strengths um you know was was something i think that yamaha were just perennially searching for but you know maybe we can we could talk about honda now neil but is if you look at the fortunes of those two factories you know i'd say honda started to improve after their dramatic opening to the season whereas yamaha just kind of like poodled along really and especially with their 2020 setup until franco kind of saved the day a little bit saved the blushes yeah absolutely yeah those final three rounds were just desperate desperate for the 2020 guys it wasn't even bad it was just horrible horrible to watch well actually um, just before we talk about honda i mean what do you think the, the aspect is for 2021 Again, there can't be major wholesale changes and you have a very, you have a factory team of a young rider, maybe a little disillusioned. You have uh, Vinales now five years, I think, in Yamaha it will be. Um, you'd say severely disillusioned. Um, he swapped crew chiefs. I mean, Esteban Garcia, that relationship there seemed to be positive for him, especially in his work in processes and his confidence, but then hasn't delivered the results perhaps that 
Yamaha are expecting. And then you have Valentino Rossi for the first time in a satellite team. How's he going to affect that squad, which has only been on the rise since they started? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest sponsors, you could say, in MotoGP. What kind of demands are they going to make on him? How's that going to influence Morbidelli and his his progress on, on, on bikes that could essentially be flawed? It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be really fascinating. But one of the interesting things is that in Morbidelli, they have a reference of what works. And stick the other guys on Fort Morbidelli's bike towards the end of the year, and you're likely to believe that they would be fighting for the top six as well. Um, if the start of the year was their form from the start of the year was anything to go by, um, so I don't think it's a all is lost type thing because they they can basically go back to the 19 bike or aspects of the 19 bike and think you know what this is actually pretty good because it's not as if the other manufacturers are really allowed to make big gains over the the winter. And you know I know it was limited mileage, but perhaps there is some influence that Cal Crutchlow could have on the testing side. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo didn't get out on the bike much, um, it would seem, this year. But uh, if there's anybody, I think, that could look an engineer in the face and say, this does not work, then I think it would be Cal. Um, so I'm interested to see how much they're going to use him. And I hope it's not a situation maybe similar to what we heard with Casey Stone in Ducati, where that feedback was not necessarily adhered to or taken on board. Um, that would be a waste of cow's time or a waste of Yamaha's time time, and it'll be a, a resource that's you know thrown away so I think one of the, <coughs> the the issues we've seen with other manufacturers is their testing team and riders have been very effective so Yamaha need to I think maybe step up in that respect yeah big time I mean you look at the last two years they had Jonas Folger extraordinarily talented ride, talent rider um, also has a decent track record on the M1 I don't think we really heard much of Folger testing regularly. And then, as you say, last year, obviously, the, the COVID situation uh, played a big role in that. And they couldn't really send a lot of the, the test team to Europe to test with Jorge Lorenzo. Um, but again, that was another opportunity that it sort of went away from them. Um, and they really need to up their, basically up their ante with the test team next year with Crutchlow for it to be effective because you can see as we mentioned within the last episode with uh, Sylvain Gintoli and Suzuki and Danny Pedrosa with KTM, I mean, that's a fundamental part of a factory's uh, performance now in MotoGP. It's, um, we could probably do a podcast on test riders, but I think uh, you know picking the right person for that job is key. I mean, KTM had it with Mika Calio from 2015, um, a very capable rider, a race winner in other categories, <clears throat> but maybe not quite you know, a Grand Prix winner or a podium guy in the premier class. Um, and Jorge Lorenzo, I think, brought a, a status to Yamaha's testing program. I mean, he was very much like, I think the athlete, you know, still a huge profile that people wanted to have associated with their 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 project, you could say, or their, their race team or their whatever. But maybe, as Cal Crutchlow kind of hinted in his debriefs towards the end of the season, not the right man to be doing countless laps, putting in the hard graft away from the cameras, um, you know, completely MotoGP without the glory or the, you know, the ego Glamour. massage. So, you know, I think, I mean, Danny Pedrosa from the KTM side, it was a rider that wanted to kind of get away from the circus and was maybe happy to ride a motorcycle at 300 plus Ks and put in that work and help a motorcycle get better. And, and the fruits of his effort have been seen. Maybe I don't, I don't really know the inside, of course, with Jorge's work, but I imagine with Cal, they're going to have someone who's a lot more uh, applied to that project. Yeah, a lot more dedicated, you would have to say, for sure. 
Um, absolutely. So Yamaha, um, I think we could call that a bit of a, a missed opportunity. Everything seemed so so well lined up for them at the start of the year, but uh, I mean, it ended in some respects in uh, in disappointment and disaster. Um, but another factory that we're going to go on to is Honda, and I mean, their season started in disaster. I mean, basically, the first Grand Prix of the year defined Honda's season because they lost Marquez, um, and they basically lost Crutchlow because from there Crutchlow was never All in never the first race. Yeah, yeah, and. I mean, they were basically fighting an uphill battle from there, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, having to suddenly look further down the pit lane and, you know, identify Taka Nakagami as your main threat for the year. I mean, that must have been a big readjustment, certainly on the technical side. Um, they looked at Alex and a somewhat nervy beginning in Hareth and thought, you know, can we really uh, orientate our, our MotoGP program around this guy? And, you know, he, he rose to the challenge in the end, didn't he? I think he had a very good season. Um but yeah, it must have been a complete sideswipe in for technically and also in terms of orientation and expectation from that first race. But then, you know, we've been saying for a couple of years now, why haven't Honda made a, a more user-friendly bike? Marquez is as phenomenal. I mean, the best motorcycle racer I've ever seen uh, made such good use of maybe a limited bike at times but then you know you get found out if you have something that's not the user friendliness that, that the yamaha has yeah yeah exactly i mean um there is perhaps some evidence to suggest that had marquez suffered an injury like this in 2019 or 2017 or 2016 that honda would have had a similarly tough time of it um however i kind of look at it and i think takenakagami was Okay, there was one race in Aragon where he looked like he had the the victory there, um, but he was a consistent fifth, sixth place guy, and I really like Takanakagami. I think he's a really good rider. But we're talking about a guy that's won just two Model Two races. The fact that his year old package was capable of regular top six, top seven finishes, it shows that had Crutchlow or Marquez been fit. And being at their best, I mean, surely they would have been a bit better, no? Yeah, completely. I mean, uh, like you know, I, I uh, Taka seems like a lovely person to talk to, but I, I don't really rate him as a MotoGP race winner. Um, I think his he had a in Aragon was his time to shine, and he mentally didn't quite look up for the up to the task. Perhaps he can learn from that, and 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 you know use it for for 2021 where he'll be more you know he'll he'll be there'll be more eyes on him but one thing you couldn't really squeeze out of honda that kind of information i'm curious about is how much they how much more they helped him when it became clear that he was their number one kind of prospect this year um you know that would be interesting to know uh it wasn't quite easy to work out i mean for sure he had more attention from the engineers he was getting more guidance on how mark has kind of somehow unearth the best of that bike but uh you know it's i think they and taka's progression as well was clear i mean he came close to being a podium guy whereas before i think he was maybe mid top 10 at best but uh yeah in terms of how we developed the motorcycle to make it better to ride that's another mystery yeah absolutely absolutely i think um we did hear that uh takeo yokoyama uh one of the the top HRC technical guys was spending quite a bit more time with Taka after the injuries suffered to to Cal and to to Mark, um, and that 
was one of the things that played a, a role in his uh, serious improvement uh, from 19 to 20. Um, I guess to talk about Alex Marquez, it's worth mentioning him because it was a really tough situation for him to come into the year. Um, being a rookie and basically being the guy that's guiding the factory team. Um, <laughs> and sometimes he was doing that from 15th place, 16th yeah. place. I mean, it can't have been easy, but we didn't really see any like fits or tantrums. No. It was uh, it was pretty, it, you know, he was pretty dedicated. Yeah, talk about the deep end. Um, the one good thing is that he has the phone number of somebody who, you know, can give him the best possible guidance on how to, to steer that team. Um, well, not even the phone number, he lives, he lives with him. But, uh, yeah, an incredible job. Really, he could have folded, I think, under that pressure. <laughs> I think it helped quite early on that Paul Spargaro was confirmed to have his bike you know, next year, I think it removed a lot of question marks about what he would do or where he would go and how how much he has to produce. I think when he knew that for 2021, he would be in a satellite set up at LCR, um, maybe not quite so much pressure, then, you know, that kind of removed some of the some of the expectation away from him. That, that, that must have helped. It must have done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also maybe give him a bit of a, a point to prove, you know, a bit of a... I want to show you guys that yeah. you know this is a stupid decision to have replaced me before I've even raced the bike. Yeah, and I think it removed some of his critics as well. Just you know, people had doubts over him in Moto Two, uh, who saw him perhaps as a bit flaky in terms of what he could produce. You know, I think he, uh, aside from Brad Binder, he was you know the rider that kind of stood out by the end of the season. Um, some big old crashes as well. That high side in Valencia couldn't have been easy to come back from, but he showed his character there to get back on the bike and give it a go. Yeah, yeah, yeah and let's not forget. You know, um, HRC probably got the most testing mileage in the races done with Stefan Bradle being there all season. So I wonder what componentry he was actually working on for 2021. Maybe the the RCV will be the surprise of next season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a strange package even when Marquez was fit. I mean, he basically reverted to part 19 bike at Jerez and he was doing some miraculous things in that before he suffered the crash, which broke his, uh, his upper right arm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. I mean, it does seem that like Ducati Honda were caught out by Michelin's 2020 rear tire. Um, it took them a lot of time to basically adjust the bike to that. It seems that they maybe got the calculations with their engine a bit wrong. I seem to remember Cal Crutchlow back at the start of the year saying that the inertia of the engine wasn't quite what it needed to be. Um, front tire pressure issues. Yeah. And then throw in the fact that, uh, you know, your two leading guys with big experience are, are crocked. Um, so yeah, one of those years just where it's nothing really goes in your favor. And Crutchlow, I mean, after that horrible injury in Australia with his ankle, I mean, breaking his wrist, having the arm pump surgery that then, you know, produced some of the most gruesome images on Instagram I think you'd see this season. Um, a snapped shoulder ligament. Am I missing something? Yeah, he went over on his ankle, I think, leaving... Uh, was it leaving? He was having a COVID test, perhaps, in Barcelona. <laughs> he, he like left the the clinic and, and basically went over in his ankle. It's not uh, quite as good as the Parmesan uh, hand cutting injury, but <laughs> this must be up there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there was one one round. I seem to remember Cal just saying, talking to us about what he did from the previous weekend, and it was just like you know, doctors' rooms, hospitals, different specialists getting a different opinion. And he was like, this is just my life now. And, you know, a little wonder that he, he basically thought, you know, I've had enough of this. Hard for British fans to see him struggling that way, um, especially after the potential he's shown in recent years. But, you know, full credit for actually being able to get out and race that thing. 
I'm not surprised that it kind of really, you know, the COVID-affected World Championship, you know, may fire some riders think I'm not finishing my career in this way. But then also the the arges of it maybe thought, right, okay, this is the time to make Hal think that's that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was tough to watch in some ways, but there was still that grit on occasion. But I think the fact that Cal fronted up to it so honestly was was quite admirable and just said, like, look, I'm, I'm not able to perform at that level consistently uh, that, that I need to do. Um, and physically, I don't think my body's really in a position where I can deal with this rigorous uh these rigorous demands and, and fighting back from injury. I mean, we're still talking about a guy that broke his scaphoid and seven days later um, finished in the points. So, you know, the uh, the application and the determination certainly wasn't lacking. Um, but riding with all of those injuries must have just, uh, yeah, I mean, seriously dented your, your basically your, your desire or your, you yeah. know, your, just the, what am I doing? I think um, there's two big elephants in the room that you somehow have to try and, you know, orientate towards the door. Uh, the first one is whether Mark can come back in 2021, firstly to race and then in any kind of condition to make an impact straight away. I think it would be tough for someone to expect him to be competitive at Qatar, having missed, in effect, a year of racing. The other one is the influence of Paulo Spargaro. Um, apparently him and Mark, not the best of friends, but, you know, hasn't really stopped the team functioning well in the past. Um, but before we get to that, I mean, coming back to LCR Honda and Taco, I have to say that his contract situation this year was one of the most boring narratives in MotoGP. I think there must have been a succession of five or six races where the phrase is close, but it's not done. Um, why? Uh, it, it was puzzling uh, why they would have to eat that out so long, but especially when he looked like he was fully deserving of a, of a you know, another HRC contract. Listener, just bask in the glory of the Wheeler cynicism, <laughs> the thing that we get to witness every single weekend, but I'm sorry. Uh, you probably only get to Love you, Taka. see Love you. occasional snapshots off. Um, yes, that was a fairly boring narrative, Adam. I do agree with you. Absolutely. Um, okay, right. So, um, no, Mark. Is he going to be back? Yeah, it's it's tough to say, really. I mean, um, uh, there was an interesting story in El Pais, uh, one of the Spain's leading newspapers, uh, usually a, a source that you can trust, of information saying that Mark had set himself a deadline for the start of December, whether he was going to have a third operation on the, uh, the upper right arm. Um, which is now. Which is now, basically. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, if he does have a third operation, it's believed that it, that would require two to three months of, of total rest, basically, to heal. And then he would start training again. Um, so that would probably lead to an absence of, of a few rounds. We still, let's be honest, we've got a calendar for 2021, but we're still not absolutely sure whether we'll be following that calendar. Um, you will know, we be in Sepang testing? Yeah, will we be in Sepang testing? Will we be going to Argentina and America at the start of the year? Will we be kicking off maybe a little later? Um, maybe that could work in Mark's favor. Um, however, I think Davizioso has obviously been linked to possibly replace Mark at the start of next season if he's not ready. Um, however, Davizioso himself said the chances of Mark not being fully fit um, for the full season are very, very low. So we will see him back. It's just how fit will he be when he returns and when will he return? There's no smoke without fire. So the fact if if riders are being asked to potentially be ready, uh, that was one of the 
one of the offers for Crutchlow, I believe, as well, for an HRC gig. Uh, if he could step in, you know, and, and substitute Mark. I mean, if HRC, if, if that's true and they're asking those questions, that means they know there's a chance he's not going to be ready. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, impacts the championship potentially next year as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Another then, year where the reference isn't there. And then the onus falls on Paul. Yeah. And, well, why not uh, Why not speculate now? Um, how will Paul do? Is that a good move for both parties? Um, I think pretty good. I mean, the way that uh, KTM have emerged, I think, has a lot to do with the character and the way he is. I can remember going into the garage uh, in a test in Jerez. His demeanor, the way he was with the, the whole crew... Uh, the way that he managed to gel everybody from, you know, the technicians that were visiting a few times a year from the from the factory in Matikhofen, Um And then also, you know, to the guys he was look, staring in the eyes every weekend in his race team. Uh, he did a great job, you know, and his work with Paul Trevathan there as well, I think, really brought that project along. And, you know, some of that attitude has to filter into the HRC uh, output for 2021. Um the way he rides the motorcycle, very aggressive, hard braking, hard entry into the corners, um, similarities to Mark. Um, you know, there were criticisms of how much he's actually achieved in the premier class, but I think, you know, he's, I don't think he's that surprising a signing for them. You know, after going down the route where they wanted to build a dream team with Jorge Lorenzo, uh, I think Paul will be like a solid, a solid you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say backup rider. I think he could be, could end up being the league, the league guy if Mark isn't fit. Yeah, yeah, I think he's, uh, he's a pretty canny signing, um, to be honest. And I think, well, we'll come on to this in our next show about KTM. But I think Paul was one of the riders of the season for me. Uh, six podiums in the final. I don't know how many races. Ten races. Um, like seriously impressive stuff for a guy on the KTM. Um, so yeah, I think he's got the, I think he's got the attitude as well. He's, he's a guy that you know he's going to push that bike to its limits every single lap that he's out in it. Um, and that's what the Honda needs. Maybe, you know, could we talk about Alberto Puch? I mean, you cannot deny the fact that HRC have a leader in, in that guy. Uh, he's very much a must character, isn't he? Um, do people, you know, they like him, they hate him, they think what he says is a load of rubbish or he's too hard, he's too you know, uh, ruthless, whatever. But, you know, I, I, you cannot deny that HRC has a point person that steadfastly is guiding that team and, and that kind of, uh, I want to say project again, but, it, you know, in the right way or in a way. Yeah, yeah. So what are you saying that... His... I'm saying it's good to have him there. Oh, yeah, right. You know, I'm saying he, he may piss people off. I don't know if I can, you know, swear on this show, Neil, but, it, you know, he... I think you're going to have a guy there who's going to make decisions and say, no, we're going to do this. You know, uh, I don't think that's necessarily true of every manufacturer, you could say. Uh, maybe it was a problem with Aprilia in the past. Maybe they're losing a couple of years because they've missed some of that hard direction. I think so, yeah. Um, and speaking to people within that squad, it does seem that um, what you hear from Alberto Puig in, a, um, in the public sphere um, and notoriously in his interviews with uh, MotoGP Pitlin reporter Simon Crefar is not the Alberto Puig that you see um, in the garage or in the hospitality or in the team truck. Um, I think he is 
a bit of, uh, I mean, he's tough and he's ruthless and he's straight talking, but there's definitely a, a human side to him, um, which I think um, endears him to, to people inside that team. Um, and certainly the riders inside that team, I don't think they have much uh, or many bad things to say about him. Um, we can maybe question the validity of replacing Alex Marquez with Paul Espargaro. Um but I think it's a it's a decent move in some respects because Alex Marquez is going to LCR Honda, super motivated to try and win his place back in the factory team. And Paul Espargaro is a very good rider, carried the KTM to some exceptional finishes, uh, regular podiums in the second half of the year. So um, I think it's a, yeah, I don't think it's the, the, the sort of disaster that we all thought it, it was after Aragon when Alex had those two great races. Yeah, and I think uh, if you look at HRC's recruitment policy, then it does show a little bit the problem with you know, signing riders so early in the year. Um, you know, Paul signed uh, pre-Hareth, I think. Um, I think, yeah, before the racing season started. So, you know, when people were thinking Alex, rookie, not great hopes for him, but then, you know, he was making the podium by the end of the year. So, you know, if Alex Marquez stayed in that team for 2021, I don't think people would, you know think that was such a bizarre move so yeah i i don't think there's a huge cause for alarm at hrc yeah absolutely yeah hopefully um for them they won't just be uh, pinning their hopes on marquez uh next year uh in 2021 okay adam well i think the uh, the sun is uh, disappearing from the sky the temperature is rapidly uh rapidly falling as you could probably hear from the shivers in uh, mr <laughs> wheeler's voice there that wasn't just because he was sat next to me and he was uh, <laughs> feeling <laughs> put another layer wary. on. Yep. Um, so I think that's a pretty good time to wrap can up we, uh, this Can we get like a, an hour delay on our next podcast, uh, you know, just to, to let the temperature, well, I should say start an hour earlier, perhaps, this, in this European winter time. We're recording these podcasts separately on different weeks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Not all at once, okay? That's what we're telling the listener. Um, okay, so... Uh, Adam, thank you very much again for uh, joining me Thanks today so. for this uh, edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Thank you as well, dear listener, uh, for your continued service and for coming back and listening to our show. It's uh, greatly appreciated as always. 2020 has been a long and interesting and well, a difficult year in many respects, but we greatly appreciate you coming back uh, to listen to the show uh, with some regularity. Um, I'd like to point you to our social media channels around about now, Twitter, at Paddock Pass Pod, facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, and of course, the Patreon page. You need to follow us on Patreon if, uh, you know, if that's something that interests you. You for can take our description. Bonus material. You can take our subscription for $3 a month, uh, and you will have uh, access to some very interesting uh, subscriber material there, uh, including some special shows with some very special guests. So uh, check that out, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Podcast. We're going to be coming back next week with the third of our uh, Constructors uh, review shows of 2020. And then we're going to come back after that with uh, some other different shows and some different ideas. Um, we'll hopefully have David Emmett back in the show. We'll hopefully have Steve English back in the show as well. Um, but until then, guys, um, we'll see you again next week. So thanks again.